Post Reports is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. Check out The Confident Wallet, a personal finance podcast series by T. Rowe Price and the Washington Post brand studio. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. This is Cleve Wootson with The Washington Post. It's Ellen Nakashima with The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, January 14th. Today, new details about how President Trump keeps his talks with Russia secret. And how an executive order could make wildfires even worse. Normally, when an American president meets with a foreign head of state, there is a certain protocol. There is extensive prep work. There is a script for the president to follow. And then, usually, there's a lot of staff. Other people in the room to hear what's said and to take careful and copious notes. And none of that really happens with Donald Trump. Greg Miller is a national security reporter for The Post. He's been reporting on one meeting in particular between Donald Trump and Russian President Vladimir Putin. It took place in Hamburg, Germany, back in 2017. This was his first face-to-face meeting with Vladimir Putin. A meeting that, by the way, Trump had been looking forward to and pursuing since long before becoming president. He wanted to meet Vladimir Putin for years. In his first meeting, he allows the Secretary of State to attend the meeting and sit in on the meeting. The only other person in the room is an interpreter. And as soon as the... There's no no one else in the room. No other U.S. officials in the room. So Russia would have had its equivalents, its own interpreter and its foreign minister. And so the meeting goes on for two plus hours. And at the end of it, the interpreter has a pile of notes. And Trump goes over to the interpreter, tells the interpreter, don't talk to anybody about what happened in here, and takes the interpreter's notes. And that's really, really unusual. Why... Is that important? Well, it's important on a couple of levels, I think. One is that it shows that Trump is trying to conceal what's happening behind closed doors in his meetings with Vladimir Putin, not just from the public, which, you know, a president might have the right to do, but from his own people. The reason we know about what happened here is because other officials in his administration who were kept out of the meeting try to go to that interpreter to get a readout. They need to know what just transpired. And the interpreter tells them, I'm sorry, I can't tell you. The president told me not to talk about it and took all my notes. And that is so abnormal in terms of how presidents do this. What happens in Hamburg in Trump's very first meeting with Putin becomes part of a much broader pattern. I mean, it plays out over other meetings. They have met now in at least five different places around the world over the past two years. And there's almost no record of what happens in those conversations. In some cases, there's not even any U.S. person present. And, you know, this is for a president who campaigned by saying awfully complimentary things about Vladimir Putin and who often seems to toe the Russian line on major issues and make decisions as president that favor Russia. He wants to pull U.S. forces out of Syria, for example, which is something that Russia has wanted the United States to do for a long time. It was only a week or two ago that Trump said that the Soviet Union then was within its right to invade Afghanistan in the 1970s. I mean, 
Nobody says that except a Russian politician or a Russian leader. Where do these talking points that Trump mimics or repeats so frequently, where do these talking points come from? So the fact that Trump is essentially meeting in secret with Vladimir Putin bolsters the idea that a lot of his decision-making is in response to what he's heard from Putin or what he thinks would be beneficial to Russia. And I mean, that's one of the other details in the story. So one of the workarounds that you end up having is officials can turn to what U.S. intelligence agencies get in monitoring Russians as they talk to one another after these meetings. What do they think they got out of this meeting with Donald Trump? And, you know, what I was told was really interesting was that these sorts of things exist, this sort of intelligence exists. There's been a reluctance at times for U.S. intelligence officials to bring this material into the White House because foreign leaders are often disparaging Trump or his senior aides like Jared Kushner. They will say things about how they can't believe what the meeting was like or they can't believe how much success they got or how easy it was to manipulate this president. And those are not the kinds of things you want to bring into a discussion at the NSC at the White House. So you reported over the weekend on this fact that the notes from that meeting were never shared with other staffers, that the interpreter was told that they could not say anything about what transpired in that meeting. What did President Trump say in response? So I think this happens on Saturday night. He's, he calls in to Fox News, basically, on a show that's very friendly to him and claims that this was all above board, that these were nothing to see here. Normal meeting meets with many world leaders that the notes from that meeting are open to anybody, that meeting is open to anybody. It's not under wraps, which is just not true. I mean, he didn't even allow his own Russia advisor into that meeting. His top advisor on Russia in the White House is one of the officials who went to the interpreter trying to scrape together some details of what had happened. Obviously, House Democrats, now that they're in control of the House, they have been talking for a while about their desire to use their newfound power to investigate the president, to kind of put more pressure on this idea of finding out whether the Trump campaign was colluding with Russia. What have they had to say about this new revelation and what are they planning to do next? The chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, the chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee have both said that they would like to go after the records. I mean, the the House Foreign Affairs Committee plans to set up an investigative entity just to look at, in large measure, at Trump's relationship with Putin and all of the secrecy surrounding it, including trying to get at records of his meetings with Vladimir Putin. What has been said? What can we learn about it? What slender records even exist at the State Department? I think those are things that House Democrats are going to be digging for in the next six months. Is there a chance that they'll subpoena that interpreter to force them to share what they'd been interpreting during that meeting with Putin? Yeah, I think there's a good chance of that. I think that Adam Schiff, the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, tried to do that last year. When Trump met with Putin a second time in Helsinki, he didn't allow any staff into the meeting. It was only an interpreter, which was really disconcerting to many people. And some Democrats in the House at the time said we should try to get that interpreter up here to testify or reveal what what she witnessed. I mean, there is a problem there. It is that interpreters are not there to take voluminous, comprehensive notes. They're there to translate, to turn English into Russian and Russian into English. So even if these notes still exist, they may not represent a comprehensive account of everything that transpired. What do people believe that Trump and Vladimir Putin discussed during these meetings? 
Well, I mean, Trump has told us at times in press conferences that they talk about lots of issues like Syria and, and other things in Israel, which is undoubtedly true. But the only thing we know about this case in the, in the Hamburg meeting is that the interpreter, when pressed by others in the in the White House about what had happened, would only talk about one thing. The interpreter acknowledged that the subject of Russia's interference in the election had come up, that Putin had denied it, and that Trump had responded by saying, I believe you, telling the Russian president, I believe what you're saying. You didn't really do it, which is an astonishing thing. This is not what his own intelligence services have told him repeatedly. And I think that's part of why he doesn't want a detailed record of this meeting even distributed in, inside his own administration, because people would be reading troubling statements that Trump is presumably making to the Russian president. Interesting, because I feel like you could look at this and just say, well, yes, President Trump is a president who likes to act unilaterally, who often doesn't take the advice of his advisors. And of course, in, in this situation, he'll just want to sort of like fly solo and go it alone and not have his advisors there. But what you're saying is that there is evidence to suggest that this is because there are actual things that were discussed in these meetings that he did not want publicly known. Yeah, whether because they're embarrassing to him or because they are not consistent with U.S. interest or consistent with what he's telling the public or his own professional. I mean, there is, of course, this other layer of suspicion, right? I mean, if it turns out that there was any coordination or collusion between Russia and the Trump campaign in 2016, did that come up? And we can't know for sure unless we speak to other people who were there, and Trump has gone out of his way to ensure that that doesn't happen. Thank you so much, Greg. Thank you. Last year, President Trump took a tour of Paradise, California following the state's deadliest wildfire in history. And during the tour, he offered up some suggestions on how to better manage forest land. Gavin's committed, we're all committed, I'm committed to make sure that we get all of this uh, cleaned out and protected. We've got to take care of the floors, you know, the floors of the forests, very important. Now, he's taken a big step toward at least one of those suggestions cutting down more trees from the forest. It's part of an executive order that Trump quietly signed just before Christmas, allowing increased logging on public land. The order says a lot of things. First, it wants to log more trees, so harvest more trees in the national forest on lands operated by the Forest Service and lands operated by the Department of the Interior or the Bureau of Land Management that it would increase the amount of trees that can be harvested by about 30 percent. Daryl Fears is an environment reporter for The Post, and he says that the administration's rationale for enacting this order was to prevent devastating wildfires in places like California. But there are some questions about whether more logging will actually help. That's because the plan pushes for a dramatic increase in the removal of tall, fire-resistant trees, but it's not nearly as aggressive when it comes to getting rid of the kind of brush and scrub on the forest floor that is more likely to actually spread fires. 
a lot of people, a lot of experts, academics will say that this decision is uninformed. They say that a lot more goes into fighting fires. Now, I have to be fair in saying, pointing out that the executive order, in addition to harvesting trees, it does call for removing the type of storage that causes fires to burn. But that storage removal is on a much less epic scale than the tree harvest increase. Obviously, such a dramatic increase in logging is really good for the timber industry, for the people who make money off of selling wood. Is there a concern that this is part of an effort to basically just allow loggers to log more and make more money? Well, Donald Trump has had it as an ambition to increase logging since he entered office. And a lot of people, certainly environmentalists, suspect that this is exactly what it is. It was a Christmas gift to the timber industry to allow them to log more trees and increase their profits. And in looking at this, we decided to ask or check around to see who supported this. And it turns out that the governors of California, Oregon, and Washington support this executive order. And when they talked about working with the president, they didn't mention, they didn't criticize the increase in harvest. But experts, academics certainly did. They said that this is detrimental to climate change reduction because trees trap carbon and it doesn't really help the wildfire problem. So you're saying that the Trump administration is more focused on removing fully grown trees than it is on like brush and scrub on the forest floor. Why is that an important distinction? Stuff that helps spread the fire is scrub brush, grasses, small trees that the fires can reach very easily. And they're actually fuels for the fire. They make the fires bigger. And those smaller, what some people call forest debris, can allow a fire to climb, to actually climb to the bigger trees. The big trees are more fire resistant. And so they're really difficult for fires to get to. When fires do get into these tree chops, they burn big. But it's that understorage that allows them to get to those treetops. But when you remove big trees, that can possibly allow fires to spread a lot more quickly and move faster past trees that aren't there. So basically what you're saying is that like what the Trump administration is seeking to do here could have the adverse effect of actually increasing fire's ability to spread. Yeah, that's the fear that when you take very large, mature, older trees, less flammable trees from the forest, then that creates its own hazard. Now, large trees that burn quickly are trees that have died, trees that are infested with beetles, and they're just sitting there dead, dry, ready to burn. But those trees aren't valuable for timber harvesters. Those trees don't sell. Well, so what would actually help the wildfire problem, at least according to experts who say that that logging isn't going to be the answer? They say that the removal of understorage or taking away the things that fuel fire is one way. The other way is to make real advances in dealing with climate change, to 
begin to stop more greenhouse gas emissions, which the Trump administration refuses to do. But the drying West and the drought is a major problem when it comes to wildfires. The third thing is to stop allowing so many people to live in what's called the wildland urban interface, which is allowing development to expand farther and farther from the urban core and closer to the edge of forests, make putting people in a very vulnerable position. But at least for now, it seems like that's not the part of the problem that the Trump administration is focused on addressing. The Trump administration doesn't seem to be focused on that at all. The executive order doesn't mention any of that. It only looks at increasing relatively few acres of understorage removal on forest service lands and interior lands. That work is already being done. That can be dramatically increased. And right now, there's not much funding for that work. Thanks so much for talking with us, Daryl. I appreciate your having me. And now, one more thing. Hamilton in Puerto Rico. The Tony-winning musical opened in Puerto Rico on Friday. And, of course, creator Lin-Manuel Miranda reprised his role as Alexander Hamilton. The production will run for three weeks, and the proceeds will raise funds for arts initiatives on the island, which is still recovering more than a year after Hurricane Maria. People are going to come to Puerto Rico because of Hamilton and hopefully spend a lot of money here, Ileng Chinchorreo, and leave their hotels and actually spend money. For people traveling from outside of Puerto Rico, seeing the show will require a lot of money, with some tickets costing around $5,000. But that doesn't mean that visitors get red carpet treatment. They're also going to see blue tarps. You know, they're also going to see how much work is left to be done. Despite the challenges in Puerto Rico, there has been progress, which Miranda says has been possible thanks to the people who live there. Puerto Ricans are the most resilient people on the face of the earth name any other city in the world that would survive this long without power and without, you know, the resources that any, any American city would get in the wake of a hurricane. Some lucky locals, however, can get tickets starting at $10, the bill with Hamilton's face on it. That's it for today's show. You can go to WashingtonPost.com slash Post Reports to learn more about the story from this episode. And you can join the conversation on Twitter using the hashtag Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Post Reports is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. 
Are you looking to learn a thing or two about getting your finances in order, saving, and investing? Check out The Confident Wallet, a personal finance podcast series by T. Rowe Price and the Washington Post Brand Studio. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen.